All right. So glad to be here this morning with you guys. Um, go ahead and get your Bibles open to John chapter 13. John 13 is the text we're going to be at this morning. If you are super pumped about being in the house of the Lord, say amen. amen. All right. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start preaching, y'all. Get ready. It's going to be great. All right, so John 13, if you don't have a Bible, we got you covered. Uh, there should be a Bible underneath a chair nearby. Um, go ahead and join us in John chapter 13, uh, and that's where it'll be, the, be this morning. We're going to be talking about the suffering servant, Jesus. We're kind of building up to the Resurrection Sunday, getting eyes on Jesus. And so we want to learn a little bit more about uh, what does it mean that he suffered for us? What is he talking about? What does that entail? Um, just going to revel in that this morning. Uh, so as you're turning in your Bibles to that uh, passage, I want to ask you a question. Can you remember a time when you were impressed by someone or something? Like I just, I was thinking about this earlier. Uh, how many of you all remember when Shaquille O'Neal played for the Orlando Magic? All right, you know who Shaquille O'Neal is? All right, Shaquille O'Neal. Do you remember when the Orlando, that's, that's my days, yo. In, in the O-Town, I call it O-Town. Orlando, that's where I was from. When Shaquille O'Neal was there, remember when he jumped and he slammed the, the rim and the, and the glass broke. How many of y'all remember that? Like, that was awesome, right? Uh, it made an impression. All right, so here's, here's the thing. We're going to be talking about impression, this entire uh, message. So that's what we're going to see Jesus doing. He's making an impression on the disciples. Um, but when we have time you hear this phrase, making an impression, what we're saying is you saw something or you experienced something that made an impact, like it left a mark. It was pressed into your mind or your heart. Now, when I start thinking of when I was preparing this message, you're not going to believe what came to my mind about an impression that stood with me. I saw this thing like probably 10 or 15 years ago. It was a video clip. I don't even know if I saw I don't even know if YouTube was a big thing back then. Um, but this, I saw the Riverdance people. You guys know who the Riverdance people are? Like those people from Ireland, they tap dance and they're like floating in the air and they're making, it's just amazing. Um, if they could put it to, to any kind of a professional fo a football athlete with their hand-foot uh, coordination, I mean, just the, the amazing technique and the ability and the, the fast pace of it, it blew my mind. Um, you know, it's, here's the bottom line, and I'm, this is the point of this particular passage. I believe with all my heart, um, it is true that there are some things that make an impression on us that remain a part of who we are. They just do. There's some events. There's some things that you experience. And what we're going to see in this passage this morning is we're going to see Jesus sitting around the table with his disciples. Um, and they, they were having their last meal together before Jesus was going to go die. This was a powerful moment. They didn't have a clue. The disciples had no understanding what was getting ready to happen that in less than 24 hours, Jesus is going to be killed. But here we are, Jesus is going to make an impression that would change the course of their lives. They would see him do something in this passage that changed them forever. And by the way, I believe with all my heart, it's not just for the disciples. God is giving us a front row seat to what Jesus was doing in that upper room. And it's going to, he's, he's dead, he did this so that we could have an impact on us, so that we could feel the same impression in our hearts and in our minds that Jesus is doing with the disciples here in this upper room. So what we need to do, though, and I need your help with this, I need you to get there with me this morning. I need you to get there. I need you to go with me. I want you to smell the freshly baked unleavened bread. I want you to feel this, this warmth of the candles in this upper room. I mean, I want you to, to hear the laughter of the disciples as they were joking, sitting around the table. You need to get out of your head this Michelangelo picture of, of Jesus and the disciples. That's not how it really was. 
I need you to get here with me this morning. And the most important thing I want us to do is I want us to get our eyes on Jesus. Because what he does is designed so that he can impact and transform our hearts as well. And what, what John does, so John is the author of this book. I guess you could figure that out, right? Um, he wrote this book, and he was sitting right next to Jesus when this whole thing went down, sitting right next to him. Um, and he begins to pit, very carefully record what happened in that moment. And what he does is he explains to us, he kind of, um, he kind of unpacks for us this event, and he's, he's sharing with us the lesson that Jesus is trying to press, press upon their hearts was that true servanthood is what true love really is. You could say it this way. True love is true servanthood. And he explains it by doing three things. First, Jesus gives us an illustration. He illustrates for us what was going on, what it means to be a true servant. Then he actually explains to us what it looks like and explains the details of how to actually do this. And then he challenges us with an application at the very end of the passage. And the wonder of it all is when we do what Jesus says for us to do in this text, there's something on the tail end of that that is absolutely beautiful. And that's what I want us to experience as a church family this morning. Let's, let's bow our heads together. Let's ask the Lord to get us there in the scene and only the Holy Spirit can do that. So let's ask his help. Lord, we come to you humbly. Lord, you have given breath in our lungs so that we could worship you. And I pray, God, through the power of your spirit, you will help us worship you in our hearts, but also in our minds. Help us to, to experience what was going on there. It is not just something that you wrote about in a book 2,000 years ago and have no bearing on our lives. This is something that you've set in front of us so that you could help us understand you, Jesus. And I pray, God, you will give us eyes to see Christ in an unusual way. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, let's get there. Let's get, begin reading in verse number one. Let's look at this illustration that Jesus begins to provide for us. And what John does is he actually uh, begins to provide some uh, kind of setting the scene, some qualifiers of what's going on in this setting before it, the whole event unfolds. Verse number one, you'll see what I'm talking about. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world into the Father, um, having loved his own who were, with, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So right in verse number one, we see uh, what John does is he explains to us, first of all, that this is the time of the Passover. This is a celebration, yo. People are coming from all over the world to come to Jerusalem to remember what God did in delivering them out of bondage. Like, how many of y'all been set free from bondage? Say amen. amen. All right, man, some of you are like, well, I grew up in church. And no, no, you were dead before you knew Christ. You are a new person. You've been set free from death. That's awesome, okay? So they're celebrating the Old Testament deliverance of God. By the way, that was all a picture to what was getting ready to happen here in about 24 hours. And so here they are. They're celebrating this Passover piece. It's supposed to be a, a celebration, a happy time. And then it says that Jesus knew very well that he was getting ready to go and be with God in heaven. In other words, he knew that he was gonna be dying in a very short period of time. Now question, quick question. What in the world would you do if you knew you were gonna die in less than 24 hours? Now, how many of y'all would go crazy? Say amen. No, 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 no people like that? Okay, no jumping out of airplanes. Why not? You're gonna die anyway. Um, you know, do things you never would've wanna do anyway. Well, here, how many of you guys would say, no, I need some me time. I need to get my affairs in order, right? We need to do that. Well, it doesn't matter who you are. 
But what amazes me, we all have our own um, idea of how we would handle the last 24 hours, but Jesus does something a little bit different. Um, and I love how it also in verse number one, he ends and says, he loved his own to the end. What does that mean? You're about to find out. Verse number two, another uh, setting of the scene moment here. He says this, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And let's stop there for a minute. So here we have Judas. John wants us to know that Judas is in the room. Say, say, Judas is in the room. Somebody say, Judas is in the room. All right, now here's the thing. When you become, every time you come across Judas, sometimes people go crazy. Like, oh, there's that snake. There's Judas the snake. He's going to betray Jesus. And I can't believe what he's getting ready to do. And listen, Jesus knows very clearly what, what Judas is getting ready to do. He's completely aware of that. But before we start folding our arms in condemnation of Judas, let's pause for a moment. and I'm going to flip the script on you. Because as I'm reading this text, the truth is, before I knew, I knew Jesus as my Savior and the Lord of my life, dude, I was a rebel. I hated Jesus. I didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And I didn't grow up in a Christian home. But some of you guys who grew up in a Christian home, yeah, you hated Jesus too. You, just, you, you, you showed your rebellion in a different way. Some people rebel by living as far away from God as they can. Or trying to, just to try to not to be a good person. Some people rebel by trying hard to be a good person. Doesn't matter who you are, we're all, we all struggle with this. So we, before we knew Christ, we were Judas. Understand that. You were an enemy of God. So let's not be too quick to condemn Judas here because, quite frankly, I think I identify a lot with him. So, continuing, um, he says a little bit more about this moment. He says, now Judas was in the room getting ready to betray him. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things, all things, it's all power has been given into Jesus' hands in this moment and that he had come from God and was going back to God. And then continuing to the next verse, which, by the way, I don't know that there should be a verse break there. It's the sentence is where it should end. He says, I was going back to God, rose from supper, period. Now the suspense begins. Can you feel John building the suspense? Here's Jesus. No, he knows very clearly that, that, that Judas is going to betray him. He's completely aware that he has all power and, and all strength to destroy and to heal and to build up and to tear down. He could get rid of this snake in a moment. He could, I mean, you could feel that's what John's doing. He's trying to get us on the edge of the sea. What's Jesus going to do to Judas? But look what he says. Continuing into verse number four. He says, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel and tied it around his waist. Now, listen, if you've heard this before, if you've grown up in church, maybe you've heard this passage before, I'm going to ask you to try, do everything you can to just put yourself there. I want you to feel this moment in your heart. Don't get so caught up in the familiarity of what's going on here. This is you sitting in the room with Jesus. Put yourself there. Okay, you see Jesus, he lays aside his outer garments, he takes a towel, ties it around his waist, and then he pours water into a basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet and then to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Somebody say plot twist, please. That is a, that is a flat out plot twist. I mean, I was expecting Jesus to just like get, get Judas out of there, right? I mean, just get him out. But he does the opposite. Some scholars believe that this is the moment where the actual disciples were, were arguing about who's the greatest among uh, the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to be the greatest? And here Jesus does something 
crazy that nobody could ever anticipate it. And he does it without even saying a word until he gets to Peter. Now, what's the, what's the significance of this? Foot washing, yo, is, is just nasty, all right? How many of y'all, <laughs> all right, just going to say it. F- feet are gross, right? Just feet are gross. I mean, if you, some of you dudes who wear open toes, you know, sandals, that's just a sin. I just made it up. It should be in the Bible. It should be a sin. Um, but it's just, anyway, I know, I'm sure God will figure it out to get it in there. But check it out. All right. So, like, look at this picture. I, I have a picture here I want you to see. This is the kind of shoe that the, the disciples were wearing back in the day. And they didn't have sidewalks, yo. They were walking in dirt. I mean, there's donkey poop in the road. They're walking there. They had serious toe jam, okay? That's what's happening. And so here, it was a very gross thing. In fact, it was so gross that the Israelites, um, they would always have these celebrations, but they would always hire out a Gentile servant or slave to actually do this particular role. The Jews were like, our people shouldn't even be debased this level. We should hire out a, a Gentile to wash the feet of somebody else. I mean, it's just gross. And what typically happened was the servant would be standing at the front door with a towel in his hand, kind of like what you see today as a butler. Um, and then they, uh, they, they, there would be a basin in the water, so they would come in, and the, the guests would be greeted, and they would take their shoes off, and then the servant would bend down, take the towel, wash their feet, and then they would be able to go inside and, and lay down at the table. Um, they laid in with their arms, uh, and they would eat at the food. That's why they had to wash their feet, because their feet were all in their face, all right? So um, that's the idea. So, so here's the thing. Understand that none of the disciples wanted to do this. This is just nasty. So Jesus knows that there was no other servant apparently assigned that role, takes this role on, and he's doing it on purpose. He's going to show them a posture on purpose. There's a method for this. And so, in fact, let's just describe, before we get into the actual rhythms of, now that we understand what a servant, this kind of a servant is, let's talk about, remind ourselves of who Jesus is for just a minute. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God, always existing, eternal father. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus is the one, his words were spoken in creation. He's the word of God. He's the one who created the universe. He created the people in the universe. And now, we talk, and in fact, there's two angels assigned to just worship and serve Jesus in heaven. At some point, Jesus leaves his throne his, his glorious throne, abandoned his throne, and comes to this earth on a mission. Comes to this earth for the sole purpose of being born into this world as a man. And then he became, and now we find him in this pit scene, as the lowest form of humanity, according to the Jewish culture, the taking the role of a Gentile servant. What is he doing? And by the way, Judas is still in the room. He's going to wash his enemy's feet. This is going to sting. He's going to wash your feet. All right, now let's go. Let's keep going. What is Jesus up to? He's he's impressing this illustration of what true servanthood really looks like. In verses number four and five, just those two verses alone, you will see seven active action verbs that are mentioned by John. On purpose, he's using seven active verbs. What's the point? Here's the point of your first and your outline. True servanthood takes action to help others. It takes action. It's not just saying that you're a servant. It's not even just thinking that you're a servant. It's taking the action 
of doing something is what a true servant really does. In fact, um, you could even say it like this. True servanthood is a do thing. It's not a feel thing. It's a do thing, not a feel thing. What am I, what am I meaning? What do I say by that? All right, just imagine the scene. This is, this is my wife. Let's say my wife, Rebecca, comes home from doing grocery shopping at Kroger, um, and she, wherever she goes, I don't know, Aldi or wherever it is, and she comes home with her trunk loaded. And this is typical, right? You know, got, thank God that we have a van that she could put groceries in. So grateful for that. But let's just say my little son landed. I'm trying to teach him how to be a servant, right? And so I say, son, we got to serve mama. She's just pulled in. We got to help her with the groceries. Let's go help her. And then uh, we walk outside, and my wife just pulls and pops the, the trunk up, and, and both Lan and I are just standing with our hands in our pockets, saying, Mama, he says, Mommy, um, I just want you to know we feel like servants today. I said, that's right, Lan, and we feel and we think, look, yo, m- sweetie, we are the real deal. This is the whole package here. We're real servants. Fist pump, pow. Okay, so here, no, my wife, she's going to think I'm an idiot. She's going to think I'm a flat-out idiot. Okay, Mr. Servant, then grab a grocery bag, Right? Take some action here. Otherwise, I'll get a drumstick thrown at my head. So the point is, there's action involved with serving. And I just want you to understand, it's not just a feel. You think Jesus, think about it. Think about it. Do you think Jesus felt like he wanted to go to a cross to rescue humanity? We're going to talk about that in a minute, what all that means. But do you think Jesus felt like he wanted to leave and abandon the throne room he was in? And it felt like having his nails pierced because of your and my sin. It feel. Listen, serving is not a feel thing. It's a do thing. And that's the point Jesus is making. Um, so with that said, let's talk about this. The question now is why? Why? Why foot washing, Jesus? Why? What are you doing here? Why the feet? That's just gross. What's the point? I think we can kind of see it, but there's actually a bigger picture at play than perhaps we understand. Check it out. Verses 6, let's go down to verse 6 and we'll keep going. And he came to Simon Peter, the loud mouth, right? How many of y'all can identify with Peter? Just always opening your mouth? Yep, it's okay, it's okay, we're all there. Um, so Simon Peter, notice nobody else said a word as Jesus is going around the table. Everybody's feeling the moment, it's they're embarrassed. But Peter says uh, to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Do you think you're going to wash my feet? What? Are you serious? Keep going. Jesus answered him, listen, Peter, what I am doing to you, or what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards, you will understand. There's a bigger picture at play here. Understand something is happening, and Peter still didn't get it, didn't listen, as if you're just going to continue talking, right? Peter says to him, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. You're never, you're the Lord of the universe, God of galaxies spoken into existence. You're not going to lower yourself and wash my nasty feet. Never, Lord. What Jesus says next, I pray, sings deeply into your souls. And I pray the same for mine. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus, he's telling Peter, Peter, you have a serious problem that you cannot see with your physical eyes. It's a problem in your soul. And I am the only one that can cleanse your soul, Peter. He's he's on his knees. Look, he's on his knees. 
and he's looking up at Peter. He's on his knees and he's looking up at you. And he says, and you've got to let me, you've got to allow me to wash your soul. You can't do this. You can't cleanse your soul. What's wrong with my soul? You may say, what's wrong with my soul? I don't understand what's wrong with my soul. Here's the issue. We were all born into this world with a propensity, a, a born natural desire to sin and to do wrong against God's standard of holiness, his standard of righteousness. And when we rebel against him, that sin is what covers us. It's a poison, and we can't get it out. We can't fix us. But Jesus says, I can make you clean. I am the only one that can make you clean. Let me wash you. He's not talking about washing his feet anymore, church. He's talking about washing his soul. We are unfit to be in the presence of a holy God is the point that Jesus is making. And some of you in this room right now feel this, don't you? You feel it. You feel the dirt and the slime and the poison in your soul. Some of you have never received Christ. You, this, maybe this is the first time you've ever come to church. Maybe the, the first time in a long time. Or you've grown up in church and you still feel this sense of poison and, and shame and guilt in your soul. Jesus says, let me wash you don't be like Peter. You will never wash my feet. You will never, don't miss this. Jesus says, I want to wash you. And it's amazing. So some of us feel in this room that we are stained, we're dirty, we're gross, maybe we're damaged goods. I'll never forget before I met Christ. The first time I heard the gospel, I felt all of the above. I was a rebel. I was a, I, you know my story. I, I, I smoked a lot of drugs. I did a lot of drugs. I, I sold drugs. I was a mess. I, like I said, I didn't grow up. Just, I always wanted this emptiness filled. And every time I tried to fill the emptiness, the poison got thicker and darker and more shame and more pain settled in my heart. And then when I understood this image, Jesus on his knees before me, I want to wash your soul that changed me. It changed me. And so here's, here's the scene. Again, go back there. Um, some of us feel this sense of dirt. And by the way, I know there's some of us in this room right now that honestly, you feel a sense of, of shame and, and dirt and, 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 and damaged because of what other people have done to you. If that's true, Jesus is still saying the same thing. I can cleanse you. I can re restore you. I can heal what others have broken in you. This is a powerful moment, church. Are you there with me? This is a powerful moment. So the question now remains, how? How is he going to do this? How is he going to wash away our, our sin? It's the cross. He's the suffering servant. He's showing us that a servant must come and he must suffer. The Bible says that the punishment of our sin is separation from God. Rebellious sinners can't be in God's presence. We're too, there's too much dirt, there's too much slime, there's too much poison. It's sin is in our way. 
So Jesus says, because a punishment is, is death, I will take the death of the individual. I will step in the way and I will endure all of the punishment that is deserved to Joe Catronio. And in doing so, he washes away my sin and gives me all of his righteousness. But the key is, I've got to be willing to allow him to do that for me. Say, allow him. He's God. In the scene, we find the God of the universe on his knees before his disciples. Asking, saying, if you, want, if you don't let me wash your feet, if you don't let me wash your soul, you have no share with me for eternity. And you will be forever separated from God unless you let me do this. Church, some of you, are in, if, you, if you've never done that, if you never let Jesus cleanse your soul, never asked Jesus to take your place on the cross, what's holding you back from doing that now? Experience this freedom. And by the way, I want to, you know, the song we just sang, um, uh, uh, what's the name of the song? A Glorious Day. There's a lyric in there that I want to show you real quick. Um, what Jesus did, all right? So, yo, I... I'm, I, he's on his knees washing my feet, but it's so much more happening here. What happens whenever we actually experience this, allow Jesus to transform us? Check it out. When I was broken, you were my healing. Now your love is the air that I breathe, right? Keep going. Um, um, keep going to the next slide. You mind? I think. Okay. I have a future. All right, check this. Come on. All right. I have a future. I have a future. I was dead. I was in jail. I have a future, right? You're catching me? I have a future. My eyes are open. Church, amen? Amen. If you've been saved, say amen. Come on. Amen. Man, I'm sorry. I'm preaching. Okay. All right. Because when, when you are called, when you called my name, what happened? Come on, say it. I ran out of the grave, baby. Come on. You can't slow me down. Here's the beauty of it. Here's the beauty of it. He washes you clean. Some of us need that experience for the first time today, and this is going to be your reality. Joy unspeakable, full of glory. That's what happens. That's what Jesus is explaining to them, and I need to get back. I want you to see this text. Keep going. as It, um, it gets bigger and bigger. This is not the climax yet. Um, continuing to read, uh, we're going to read verse, um, let's, uh, verse, Peter's response, verse number nine. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, if that's the case, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Amen. Give me a bath, Jesus. I want all of you. That's what he's saying. All right. And Jesus answered him, Peter, look, what I am doing, or, or he says, Jesus said to him, the one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. He's speaking about Judas in this moment. Um, for he knew who was, who, who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse number 12, critical question coming. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? I would encourage you to circle that phrase, that question in your Bible. Do you understand what I have done to you? Notice the phrase, to you, not just for you. This is something that Jesus has done to us. This is big. This is the aftermath, after the moment of, I have been washed, okay? I have been cleansed. Do you understand what Jesus has actually done to you? The transformation that has occurred to you. This is big. Something big has happened here. 
Um, and this idea, this by the way, understand, it's an experiential understanding. It's not an, an, an ascent of your mind. It's not, just a, it's not just a comprehension of the wonderful doctrine of salvation. That's not more than the theology. It's an experience of the theology. That's what he's saying here. So with that in mind, he goes into the application. Now, let me show you this next point. That what true servanthood is, as is explained, true servanthood is motivated by the gospel. In other words, what Jesus is getting ready to, what he's showing these believers, um, these disciples, is that because of what Jesus is getting ready to do for them, should cause a reaction in them. And that is the motivation for the service. Jesus was motivated to do the service of cleansing their soul because he knew that that was the only way they could be restored to God. In a like way, in a similar fashion, so should we. When we understand what Jesus has done for us, there's a motivation that occurs that causes us to want to serve others, even if it means to the point of suffering. All right. And I would say this. It's all because we have a new identity. So I was blind, I was dead, but now I'm alive, and now I can see. All right, so let's move into this application. He shows us an application here, verses 13. I want you to see this. In verse 13, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord, that's an important phrase, and teacher, he's the Lord of my life and is a teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. You saw what I did for you, I went, and I'm getting ready to go to the cross to die and restore you to a right relationship with God. I did this for you, and I'm your master. You're no better than me. You're a servant to follow me. You're like-mindedless. I changed you, all right? Nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. So what's, what's the application? What is, he, what is he going after? He's basically saying, look, um, because of what I've done for you, there should be a holy motivation, a, a, a gospel-centered passion um, to, to serve others. And by the way, he said, this is something that you ought to be doing. In other words, this is an expectation. If you are born again, you've been set free, you ought to want to serve other people. It ought to be a natural reaction. Like somebody hits your knee, boom, you know, that's a natural reaction. That's what should happen because of what Jesus has done for you. Now, let's just be honest. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. That ain't always true. I mean, listen, don't be calling up me today later today and say, hey, come over to my house. We're going to rake my yard, right? Because sometimes there's motivations that aren't right. Sometimes I'm not, I don't have a pure heart. So let's talk about that for a minute. Um, what is, what, sometimes we can misapply what Jesus is saying here. It doesn't mean just get active and serve, right? It doesn't just mean that. It's, it's being active and serving with the right motivation. But how do I know if my motivation is off, guys? Is there some help that might be available that could help me figure out if I have the right motive in serving other people? Well, I'm going to give you five, five, maybe some five questions you could ask yourself to test your heart in the moment or maybe to evaluate your heart right now. Um, whether or not you are serving with a gospel-centered motivation. Here's some five common ways we tend to serve that are more selfishly motivated. Number one, do we serve in order to get something from God? I'm sorry, from others. Do we serve in order to get something from others? What does that look like? Well, it looks like, you know, eighth grader at home. Hey, mom, 
I'll, uh, they haven't quite hit the puberty stage yet, right? Um, hey, Mom, I, I, I'll mow the, I mean, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll vacuum the house for you. Um, just let me stay out late, you know, maybe past curfew tonight and hang out with my friends. Like the motivation is off, right? Um, eighth graders, that's, that's not a good motivation for, what you're, for helping your mom. I'm not pointing the finger at you. I can relate to that. Um, but is that my motive? If so, I'm, I'm getting my eyes off of the gospel. What about this one? Am I serving in order to impress others? Whenever I do a good deed or I, I finally fulfill a need that somebody has, am I quick to post about it on Facebook or social media? Come on. That stings. That stings. Um, just check your heart. Why are you serving? And, and what's the motivation behind serving? Am I wanting to post and be impressive to other people? I want other people to think that I'm a good person. Boy, I, there's Pastor Joe, man. He really knows how to serve people. Listen, my wife will tell you I am sometimes extremely selfish. Wow, what a surprise. Woo, right? You're falling too. Um, but these are just good heart checks. All right, now number three. Do I serve in order to remove a sense of guilt? <laughs> what does that mean? Like obligation, right? Right, says, we need to go help so-and-so to put down their floor. Really? Like, it's the final game of the NCAA tournament, and you want me to do that now? He's more than capable of putting his own floor down, right? I, no. Like, I'm just being real. I'm just being real, okay? These are common things. Um, a sense of, of obligation, a sense of guilt. If I don't do this, geez, my wife's going to be up my, you know, up my back nonstop. All right? Number four, in order to get something from God. You know, I, I, sure, God, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Now, look, here at Harvest City South, we're all about making disciples, right? Sometimes we, 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 we really, we're never going to stop preaching that message. That's the calling of all of our lives. We've been changed by God. He's called us to be active and, and making disciples. But here's the thing. Sometimes our motives can be off in that. Sometimes we'll do things like, well, I'll, I'll go disciple so-and-so because I know they got some money. You know what I'm saying? So maybe they can give me some hookup. Or maybe they can, maybe we can go to dinner at their house. Or, or, or maybe, maybe, you know what, I, I, I honestly, maybe God can, hook, can bless my life if I actually get more. If I disciple more people this year, like that's commanded in Scripture, if I do a lot of those things, then surely God's going to bless A, B, and C in my life. No, that's a twisted motive, church. That's twisted. That's self-seeking motivation. Um, last one here is do I serve in order to win the favor of God? Do I serve in order to win the favor of God? It means sometimes we, we serve other people so that we could have a sense of forgiveness. You know, God, I, I, I just, I want you to know that I'm serious. I really mean it this time. I really mean it. I will serve you. I will do what you want. Just, just I want you to let me experience the forgiveness. I just want to be forgiven or I want to be cleansed. I want to, listen, you are forgiven. Jesus, or John, who wrote the same book, wrote also another book in the back of your Bible. John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. All of it. All of it. You don't have to win God's favor. You are forgiven. So you're free to serve other people with a gospel-centered motivation. And here's the point. In doing so, Here's what happens in verse 17. When we serve out of a gospel-centered motivation, verse 17 is a promise. If you know these things, if you know these things that I've taught you, blessed are you if you do them. This is your third point. True servanthood produces a soul-satisfying joy. That's what the word blessed means. It means 
joy. <laughs> if there's a climax in this message and you don't need me to hoop and holler and jump all over the stage to feel the weight of this, the climax of this message is your soul-satisfying joy. Nothing can replace it. Nothing can conquer it. There's nothing stronger, nothing better than having a life where your heart and your soul is filled with joy. If you need more joy in your life, get your eyes on the gospel. Let your heart be stirred by what Jesus has done for you and you watch how the reaction occurs in your heart and you will want to serve other people and ask God for the opportunity. Say, well, I don't know if I should ask God. Sometimes you don't even have to ask him. He sometimes just brings him right to you. The least expected opportunity. But have the pure heart. Understand what Jesus has done for you. So how do I, is there something that I could, I don't know, something that can help me to, to maintain a motivation? I saw the five things that are good heart checks about selfish motivation. But, but what about, I don't know, a, a way to keep my heart motivated on the gospel or how to keep my heart focused on the gospel? Yeah, it's the same message you hear us preach every single week. Worship Christ daily. Walk with Christ daily. And work for Christ daily. If you do that daily, joy, unspeakable, full of glory happens. You know what's going to happen? You're going to be a disciple maker for the glory of God. And the church said, amen. Amen. That's what this is about this morning. If, the, if I were to give you a, this, the sermon in a sentence, here's the sermon in a sentence. Gospel, I would say gospel-motivated servanthood always produces a soul-satisfying joy. I can't, I can't put it in any other words than to say, Jesus did this for you, and he suffered the cross for you so that you could experience a soul-satisfying joy. No more guilt, no more shame, just joy. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for the opportunity to just gather together around your word, gather together to worship your son. Thank you, God, for getting us in the room with those disciples. God, thank you for helping us see what you did as you were on your knees telling us that you want to wash away our guilt and, and restore us to God. Lord, that's amazing. And Lord, today we're getting ready to just celebrate as we actually get to see how you've done this in other people's lives. This is not just something that you wrote about in a book. This is happening today. This salvation, this restoration with you is offered to all of us in this room. And today we get to hear about some of the things you've done in other people's lives to bring them to the point of this beautiful, gospel-centered joy transformation. Lord, the celebration that's getting ready to happen is all for and all to the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name.